But um, God is good. Amen. Yes, he is. He is so good. I've been singing about it. And I just want to echo what Eric was saying about, you know, Romans. And I hope you guys are really enjoying it. I am. I, you know, when you're, when you have to teach it, you really get down into some of the nitty gritty. And there are just so many things that I'm squeaking a little bit. Clayton, can you back me off? Um, there's just so many things that are, you just, you grab and you're like, oh, I never thought of that like that, or I never heard that, you know, or I don't know. It's, it's just blessed me, and I just, I want to remind us as well, you know, Dennis Kramer back in 2014 um, prophesied that we would be more theologically sound, and this is a part of that. Us going through the books of the Bible and preaching the books of the Bible so that we have a foundation um, is so important. And we believe wholeheartedly that this is a part of us getting more theologically sound. And so I hope you're reading it with that in mind, as well as personal enrichment and edification, but that you are really getting a foundation of what do we believe, what, do we, what is truth, so that we have truth when it comes to encountering people in the world. You know, one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter to the Romans is because he'd never been to Rome. And, but there were already Christians there. And so Paul, when he wrote this letter, he wrote it to kind of introduce himself to the region. He, he wanted to fully explain his theology to the, the people who were there because he wanted to come and he wanted to be received. He wanted to plant more churches in Rome. And so this was kind of like his introduction letter to, Here, here's my beliefs, you know, so that there could be an open door for him there in Rome. You know, and when I think about that, I, I question, what if, what if I was required to have this so in my heart before I could go out? What if I had to get this so deep in my heart before I could be received and the ministry that God has on me can be fully released? I hope that's how you guys think about this. I hope when you listen and we share from the word, I, you know, one of the things that I do when I'm reading, whether I'm reading a book or I'm reading the Bible and I'm getting great information, great uh, revelation I immediately start thinking, how can I teach this to someone else? When you shift over from uh, casual reading and entertainment purposes, like as long as this makes me feel good, I stay engaged. When you shift from that mentality to how can I teach this to my children? How can I teach this to someone in the youth ministry? How can I teach this to someone on the street? If you will start reading with that mentality, this stuff will get deeper into your heart. I promise it. Well, last week I, I shared out of Romans chapter 6, and I shared about dying with Christ and what that looks like for us. And I shared how um, Paul talks about water baptism is the way that we unite ourselves with Christ in his death. And then when we come up out of the water, it's, it's symbolic of our resurrection with him. And it's all by faith. All of that is by faith. And I also shared last week how Paul describes becoming born again and water baptism as a, he describes it as a literal death in the spiritual world right? Who we were in the spiritual realm before Christ is gone. It no longer exists. That, that person that is gone, he's dead. That means now all future struggles with sin that I have, they come out of my body of flesh, right? That's what he said. It's not my renewed spirit. That's not where my problem lies. And it is because we are justified by faith, dead with Christ and alive in him, that we no longer want to sin. That's who we are way in our, in our spirit. 
and our renewed man. And we certainly do not want to be abusers of grace. Amen? And some of the things, you know, last week I shared that some of the things that we are to die to with Christ are things like my own glory, my own safety, my own fulfillment, my own pleasure. We live to love God and others on a deep and sacrificial level because our reason for what we do has now changed. Right? All that self, self, self is selfish. What I'm doing now, I do for the love of God and for the love of people. That is what Romans 6 was about and what we didn't cover in Romans 6, and I'm just going to briefly touch some of that. Verses 12 through 23, Paul says that when sin wraps us in chains and drags us, it, it ends up dragging us places we don't want to go. That's the problem with sin, right? It truly turns us into slaves, is what he says. People held in bondage who are uh, unable to do as we would really want to do. But becoming God's slave is a completely different matter. God gave us free will so that we could choose to love and obey him in the first place. And he does not take that freedom away when we become born again. We still have it. So God absolutely has no desire to, for us to become these little mindless human beings running around and just serving him like robots. That's what Paul says in the 12 through 23. The idea, in fact, that we would become these little robots, little automatons, is repulsive to him. The Bible clearly teaches that what he longs for are children. Adopted sons and daughters who serve him because they love him. They want to become holy because they want to be like the one who is the center of their worship. And because uh, this is his nature, our service for him will always have to be freely chosen. So if I'm to become a slave of obedience, like Paul describes, then I've got to constantly choose to submit myself to God's will. So that was Romans 6. And that brings us to Romans 7. And in this portion of Paul's letter, it is specifically addressed to the Jewish members of the churches in Rome. Because remember, there are Gentile Christians in Rome, and there are also Jewish Christians in Rome. And Paul, who is also a Jew... Uh, knows that his fellow people are on the struggle bus when it comes to the issues of the Torah, which is the law of God, right? They're on the struggle bus when it comes to uh, the Torah and the law and this new faith in Jesus. So Paul is going to explain to them a spiritual truth based on their common experience as Jews in reading and in trying to obey the law of Moses, right? And for them, this is the Genesis through Deuteronomy. So today, though, 2,000 years later, I think this is applicable for us uh, as we listen in on this conversation in chapter 7 because um, I, sometimes we read stuff like, oh, that's the Jews and that's not me and I don't have to deal with that. But, but I think this does apply. In fact, Paul is talking about an area of relationship with God in which we all struggle. See, there's this odd phenomenon that we observe, I think, in ourselves. When God speaks to us, whether it's through His written word, or it's by the inner voice of the Holy Spirit, or even prophetically through another person, there can be an initial momentary flash of stubbornness, resistance. Even though we may be certain that we just heard from him, something that comes up, 
And as a born-again believer, I, I love him, and so do you. And I have made a sincere, general commitment to follow him in every way. Yet there is something about his specific will, his specific ways of doing things that sometimes runs counter to the way I would expect or prefer to do them. Almost always when God speaks a command to me, I find my first reaction is probably to argue with him a little bit, especially the hard stuff. And my, my emotional response, if, if I put it into words, I would summarize it as, you know, oh no, you've got to be kidding. You want me to do what? Well, I think this passage helps to explain why I react that way. And that insight is going to be essential for me if I'm going to let God train me to be like his son. Because I'm a son. I'm adopted. So I want to give you a quick chapter overview so that when you read Romans 7 again, and I hope you do, just so you have a kind of an idea of how the chapters, how they kind of break down. I think it can be divided in these following three sections. So the first one is changing covenants, which is uh, verses 1 through 6. And, and in this section, Paul's, he tells the Jews that when they die by faith with Christ, they are freed from the covenant at Mount Sinai, right? He's talking about the struggle bus they're on. And so he tells them when they die by faith with Christ, they are freed from this covenant that they all made, their fathers, their ancestors made at Mount Sinai, in which they as a people promised to obey the law of Moses or be cursed. Right? Like this was a big, big deal. We will do this or we will die. The next section is verses 7 through 13. I think we could call that the rebellious spirit prior to faith in Jesus, right? This is our unrenewed state. And in this section, Paul describes his own experience as a Jew trying to obey God's word uh, before he became a believer. And he says that what God's word did was it actually exposed a rebellion that was in his spirit. Not just his flesh, it was in his spirit. When God spoke to him, he discovered that he was actually enslaved to sin. Didn't even know it. In fact, when he, when he read the law and he heard God speak, it actually, he actually became more disobedient is what he says. It revealed the depravity and the depth of his sin. And he discovered how desperately he needed God's grace. It wasn't, and, and he says that in the section that it wasn't there was something wrong with God's word. The problem was him, me. And then I think the third section we could label as the rebellious flesh after faith in Jesus. And in this section, Paul describes the frustration he experiences as a believer trying to bring his flesh, right, his his bodily appetites, his emotions, his, all the old ways of thinking, how he, he, he's, he's really trying to bring those things into obedience to God's word. And he realizes that my spirit is no longer rebellious. In fact, my spirit wants to please God. But these old desires that, that still reside in my flesh and my body, they hold me, they hold me captive. And he's discovered how deeply and desperately he needs God's power. Do we need God's power? He's discovered he still has a long way to go to be like Christ. So let's dive in. Let's talk about changing covenants. In Romans 7, verses 1 through 4, he says, But do you... Not no, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. He's talking to the Jews, right? Remember in our, Jew, our, our, uh, our here journal, who's this being addressed or who is he talking to? Well, right here he's talking to his Jewish brothers. 
For you know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So let's get some background again. So the Jews have a relationship with the law of Moses. And it began in this solemn covenant ceremony that was performed at Mount Sinai, right? Remember Moses comes down, he's got the Ten Commandments, and he breaks them because you, you're idiots, Why uh, you're making, worshiping golden calves, and I'm just over it, you know. But, but they make this covenant, smoke and fire and thunder and all kinds of stuff. And so that's where it started. And they were married. They became joined to it. In fact, large sections of the Torah record the terms of that covenant, right? So for us to understand why the Jewish Christians were on the struggle bus, we've got to understand that for a Jew to walk away from the Torah was to violate the sacred vow that they made with God as God's people. And the result of that violation would be to bring upon themselves the curses that were contained in that covenant. So no faithful Jew could just would just decide to stop following the law. Hundreds of years of this reinforced culturally everywhere. To do so, to, to, to walk away from the Torah, to walk away from the law, would turn them into the scum, cursed scum of the earth. And so that's the underlying issue that Paul is addressing here. They have got some cognitive dissonance that he needs to help them work through. He wants his Jewish readers to see that following Christ is not a breach of our covenant. And the way that he does this, the way he does this is he compares the covenant that they made at Sinai with a marriage covenant. In fact, the central part of his argument is this, that the vows of a marriage covenant cease to be in force when one of the parties dies. And the same thing is true as what he's saying to our vows that we made at Sinai. In fact, we just read, if you remember in Romans 6, verses 3 through 11, that the person who puts their faith in Christ is actually counted dead in the spirit realm. They've died with him, okay? We're carrying that idea over now into seven. As far as God and the law are concerned, that person who has faith in Jesus has died and is therefore released from being made right through working the law. They are free from their vows and its power to curse them has ended. Someone say amen. The ultimate demand of the law is death. You break the law, death. That demand has been met in Christ. Paul drives this home by saying that a man or a woman who has entered into a marriage covenant, they can't leave their spouse who's been faithful to them and marry another person without committing the sin of adultery. Because marriage is a solid binding agreement and it cannot be broken without bringing God's judgment unless the spouse dies. If the spouse dies, then a person is free to marry another. So just as death releases a spouse to be able to remarry, 
the spiritual death that we go through that takes place when we die with Christ, it frees us. And he's telling his Jewish brothers and sisters, it frees you as a Jewish person from your obligation to your marriage to the law. Again, let's, let's remember that, that Paul's belief is that our death with, with Christ, it's not just a figure of speech. In the spirit realm, this is our literal reality. It's the same as a physical death. For Paul, dying with Christ is as significant as our actual physical death. Nothing less than death it could actually free a Jew from their marriage to the law. That was the only way out. And death took place by faith, when they joined with Christ, when they went down in baptism into the grave with Him, and they resurrected as a brand new person. Paul tells believing Jews in verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So, as we continue with this marriage analogy, he compares Jews who believe in Christ to widows. It's kind of, it's a little weird because they die, but (laughs) that's the point. And because they died with Christ, the covenant that they made at Sinai, the law, It loses its power to hold them. And so like a widow, they became free to enter into a new marriage. And guess who their groom is? It is the resurrected Messiah. It is Jesus Christ. And just just like a natural marriage produces the fruit of children, so does a believer's marriage covenant With Christ, it also produces fruit for God. Produces fruit like evangelism. Christ-like character. Acts of selfless service toward your neighbor. This is how believers who have been freed from the law end up fulfilling its most central goals. Now, just, I want you to just think about for a moment about all the fruit that has come from your life being united with Christ. Just close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to think about this. Think about the fruit that has come from your life being united with Christ. What has God created in and through you because you are one with Christ? I think about the blessed life He gave me through the love of my wife. That was from Him. That was because I was united to Him. I think about my beautiful children who love and serve the Lord. That was from Him. I think about the hundreds of people that I've had the privilege privilege of leading to the Lord. I think about the spiritual children whose lives have been changed. I think about the glorious presence of God that inhabits the praise and worship of this place and it goes forth. I think about all the healings all the breakthroughs, all of the deliverance that has changed the course of people's lives forever. My union with Christ, your union with Christ has brought a great harvest of fruit. So trying to be right through keeping the law doesn't do that. You don't get that kind of result by working hard for God's love. Only our faith in Jesus does that. 
In verse 5, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul is he's, he's reminding his readers about the negative influence the law had on them before Christ set them free from it. Paul's looking back to his days of being a Jew who was trying to obey the commands of the law while still being enslaved to his flesh. See, not only did he and his fellow Jews fail to obey but their knowledge and their exposure to the law actually ignited new sinful passions and desires that they didn't even know about until the law said, don't do those things. Right? It's like the little kid and you sit something and you go, don't touch it. What do they do? They're fixated on it. They're just waiting for you to leave the room. If the Jews thought their covenant with the law of Moses was a marriage, the fruit of that marriage was death for them. That's what Paul's saying. If they thought that the result that they were going to end up with, they didn't have any, they didn't know that as through this, yes, we are, we'll say yes to the law of Moses, they didn't understand that the result of that ended up condemning them for their failures, for the, and, and it made them more rebellious than ever. I mean, what a contrast that old fruit of death is from the new fruit of being that is being produced with our marriage and our union with Christ. So Paul goes on and he says, once these Jewish believers became righteous by faith, they entered into an entirely new relationship with the law. No longer were they forced to obey it down to the smallest detail and fear all of its curses. He said, it's done. The radical change that took place in their own spirit set them free to fulfill the true intent of the law. You see, by being joined with Christ, they entered into this brand new relationship with the Holy Spirit who now is going to guide them. He's going to provide them with the power to successfully serve and obey God because God still wants that. So let me ask you, are you dead to your marriage to the law? Are you still trying to get God to bless you by working hard for his love? If you're like me, it depends on the day of the week. Some days I act like I am still married to the law, trying to earn God's love, God's favor, God's peace. Some days... I am living like I'm the bride of Christ. I know who I am, and I know whose I am. Those days are golden. Amen. Amen. Those days are full of being fulfilled. They're, they're, they're full of fruitful living. Those days, I obey God because... I have his love, not because I'm chasing to get his love. Those kind of days are the target that I'm aiming for. Sometimes when I'm living like I'm loved, and this is important to realize, sometimes on the golden days that I feel like I'm living hard and good for God, not because I, I'm chasing love, but because I have it, sometimes on the golden days, Hard things still happen. Trials still happen. Suffering still 
happen. But it never, say never. Never, never. It never means that God is against me or that he's at war with me. I'm dead to my marriage, to the law, and now I am living in the newness of my union with Christ. No matter what happens or how hard life can get, I am loved. Say that, I am loved. Say it again, I am loved. Say it again, I am loved. Even in my worst days, I am loved. Let's move on to verses 7 through 13. Now remember, when I broke our chapters down, this section of verses 7 through 13 I labeled as the rebellious spirit prior to faith in Jesus. And in this section, Paul is going to describe his own experience as a proud Pharisee trying to obey God's law. And he says that its commands actually exposed the rebellion that was lying dormant in his spirit. Not only was he unable to obey, but a force rose up within him that seemed like it was taking on a life of its own. So instead of preventing sin, the law actually awakened it, (coughs) caused him to sin even more. So through this process, Paul, he has this discovery that how much he uh, needed God's grace. It wasn't that there was something wrong with God's commands. They were holy. They were good. The problem was inside of him. So verse 7, he says, What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So, as Paul's Writing this part of his letter, he's painfully conscious of the fact that he has put the law now in kind of a negative light. Which again, cognitive dissonance. What are you saying? What are you talking about? He just told his Jewish readers that through Christ they had been released from being bound to the law. And as true as this is, he is still very concerned that he not leave this impression that something is wrong with God's revelation to Moses. He's like, I don't want to walk away from this with you thinking that. And so he asked that question. He said, is the law sin? And immediately he replies with the words, by no means. Some translations say, may it never be. This is emphatic. God's law is his revealed will. And the law was sent to show us the holiness of God's character. God is pure and everything he does flows out of his perfect love. So when his word commands us to do something or not do something, God is showing us what he would or would not do in that situation. That's the law. And in the process, it doesn't take very long for us to discover how unlike him we are. It doesn't take long for us to realize, oh, there's still some sin here. Paul makes this point further. He wants to illustrate this truth by using himself as an example. He points to his own reaction to the tenth of the Ten Commandments, right? Which is, you shall not covet. And he says that this commandment stirred up sin that had laid dormant in him. And his words, literally, in in the literal, it says, worked in me every lust. Now that word coveting, 
It means to desire something that belongs to someone else. But the Greek word that Paul uses here to describe this is a much more passionate, lustful emotion. The Greek word is epithemia, and it means lust in all of its expressions. So we've got both in the Greek and the Hebrew, the word is used especially for talking about areas of sensuality and materialism. So when Paul tells us he experienced every coveting, every lust, he's talking about both sensual and material stuff. And then in verse 9 he says, I was, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So when he says, I was once living apart from the law, he, he's not claiming that he was sinless before he encountered God's command. It's not his point. He made it clear, in fact, earlier in this letter that people who are ignorant of God's law still sin and still die, right? That was Romans chapter 2. That was Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 5. He talks about that. What he's telling us is from his perspective, he's telling us what the experience felt like when he went through it. See, during his childhood years, he, he was probably unaware that he had a problem. I mean, don't most children live that way? Free, they don't, you can't take that. You're not allowed to hit your brother. You're not, you know, I mean, they just do. They just live. It's not until we start handing out the law no, you're not going to do that. No, you can't have that. No, you can't stay up. No, you can't watch that. It wasn't until Paul got the list of do's and don'ts that something in him took over. A rebellious force that took hold of him that he didn't even realize was there. Instead of being able to bring his passions into submission to the commands that he was reading, his sinful tendencies actually grew stronger. They revived, right? Lived again, and they forced him to face the fact that he was guilty. And that on the day of judgment, he would surely be rejected. So his youthful sense of Feeling God near him, it kind of died. And his heart started to get hard. And then he goes on into verse 10 and he says, This is the very commandment that promised life proved to be death in me. See, the reason God gave us his commands was to show us what we must do in order to become like him. He wants us to have life. Everyone say life. Everyone say life. And in the highest form of life, that means we live in an unbroken fellowship with God. But because there is within us this overpowering compulsion to please ourselves, even the most self-disciplined among us is unable to obey God. Even if you are super duper good at controlling all your outward behavior, I'm always poised. Guess what? We still fail when it comes to controlling the raging storm that wants to murder that person because you hate them. Paul was doing really good a lot of his outward behaviors. But you know what he couldn't control? He couldn't control his inner desires. And if we remember, Jesus says that these inner attitudes are actually the most serious offense in God's eyes. Remember Matthew 15, Peter says to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? 
Do you not see what, that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, it doesn't defile anyone. He goes on in verse 11, Romans 7, he says, For that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me, and through it, killed me. So Paul is telling us that God's command provided sin with this opportunity to thoroughly pull the wool over his eyes, thoroughly deceive him. And he uses the same word here, that he applies to Eve in 1 Timothy 2.14. The word is deception. Even as he describes his years before coming to know Christ, Paul distinguishes between his human spirit and the Adamic rebellion he calls sin. Right? Very likely he sees a separation between the two because God did not originally create Adam with a rebellious spirit. Obviously, he did create him with a free will, capable of disobedience, but until that first disobedient act took place, this rebellious compulsion actually didn't enslave Adam. It was only after Adam sinned that his human spirit fell helplessly under sin's power. Now, it doesn't mean, and we're not implying that Adam was somehow this innocent victim, and what happened? No, he disobeyed. We know from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we know that Adam willfully chose to sin. He's not a victim. But after he did that, he ended up helplessly dominated. No power. He lost his ability to not sin. And so this distinction between our human spirit and the rebellious effect of sin, I know it maybe seems subtle, but it's very important because we're beating ourselves up over this very issue. Our identity issues are all tied to this. The difference, the distinction is subtle. It's important because it reminds us that our rebellious condition is unnatural. It's not the way we were created to be. The way we should review the unredeemed spirit is like a captive sold into bondage to sin. That's the right way to look at it. And as Paul looks back on his life before his new birth, he says, Sin took this opportunity through this commandment, and it thoroughly deceived me, and therefore killed me. Now again, he's, he's, he's not trying to say that his unsaved human spirit was essentially good. I'm not getting into heresy here. He's not saying that he was some kind of innocent victim because, you know, I was deceived and I didn't know. No, he's saying that like all unsaved humans who are in the flesh, everyone has fallen prey to this powerful force and they've all lost their ability to fully obey God. Every one of us. And then he says in verse 12, he says, The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me that was producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So if, if like Paul, the entire human race is unable to obey God's law, and the effect it has on us is to stimulate rebellion and make us even more guilty. Wouldn't we have been better off 
to never had the law? Wouldn't we have been better off if it had never come? Was it a mistake for God to send His law in the first place? Well, that's the question Paul's addressing here. Now, once again, what was his answer? By no means. May it never be. There is nothing wrong with God's law. It is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. And it serves a very important role in God's plan of salvation, which is this. It confronts and exposes the rebellion hidden in my heart. It shows us how guilty we are and how desperately we need God's grace. Amen? Amen. You know, one of the biggest problems with evangelism is sometimes convincing someone they need salvation. I mean, we can tell them, hey, Jesus loves you. You want him? Sure. I'll add him. Can I DM him? No. It's the convincing that we are sinners, doomed, judgment, condemnation. condemnation. That's the point of the law. And that's Paul's point here. Now I want to I want to pull back and I want to look maybe from just a little bit of a broader perspective. If we if we kind of Look closely, but broader. We'll see that over and over and over again, Paul is trying to locate the source of the problem in a believer's life. It is in their flesh, their body. It is not in their spirit. And he is doing this to explain, though our spirit is born again, He's doing this to explain why we are still struggling. For Paul, the flesh, it represents our old thinking, our old mind. The ways we were when we were deceived and, and our, or, or the, the times when our faith is low or we depend on our natural reasoning powers or, or we're just, just not listening to the Holy Spirit. You know, in Matthew... 6 verses 22 through 23 Jesus he teaches us that the eye is the lamp of the body and he seems to be identifying the eye as like this window into the human spirit right where my spirit focuses its attention and desire determines what I am full of either light which is revelation or darkness, which is deception. And so Paul, he's making the same distinction between the spirit and the flesh. He says, my spirit is able to direct the focus of my mind either onto my flesh or onto the voice and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we've got both Jesus and Paul They're both telling us the same message. We have a role to play in living an obedient life. Say, I have a role in being obedient to God's ways. We are not helpless puppets caught in some great drama. Our lives are transformed by a process in which we must fully participate in. There is no magic wand. Believe me, I looked for it. There is no magic wand that will fix you overnight. Becoming like Jesus happens when God takes me by the hand and he trains me. Time after time, we hear him speak to our spirit. And then guess what? He waits for me to obey. Now, as a believer, 
I struggle when God speaks. I know you struggle. And it's not because I'm still a rebel. It's not because I don't want to know God's will or His ways. It's just because His new ways are so different from my old ways. And the changes He wants me to work are very painful ones. You know, when God speaks, He often calls me to faith. And that confronts my thoughts that His will for me is too high. It's too hard. It's beyond me. But He's trying to stretch me far beyond my comfort zone. He's asking me actually to ignore my fears and my low self-esteem and do things that I actually dread doing. Even though I'm sure I'll fail at it. Doesn't make sense to me, God, why I need to do that. In fact, God, it's going to take a miracle if you think this is going to happen. Well, guess what? That's the plan. He wants to do a miracle. When he speaks, he calls me to humility. And that confronts my thoughts that his will for me is too low or unimportant. When he calls me to humility, he's asking me to do selfless, humble acts of service for others. And it strikes at my pride, exposes my insecurity. He asks me to humble myself so I can go clean up my relationship messes. He asks me to think about myself less, my rights, my wants, my desires. He calls me to share his reproach, which confronts my thoughts that his will for me make me look foolish. Because he asks me to do things that a lot of times aren't understood or admired by other people. To, and, and, and he asks me to do things that for me to obey, I have to cross a barrier of shame. Possibly walk into some embarrassment. But he calls me to share in his reproach. A lot of times he calls me to risk. This confronts my thoughts that his will for me is too hard. He asks me to do things that may put my own safety at risk or actually press me to rely on his strength. You know, thoughts like, well, this is too dangerous or I'm too tired. I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't speak very well. Remember Moses? I don't read very well. I can't do that. You know, I, I've always been afraid of whatever. Fill in the blank. He calls me to risk. And he calls me to trust. Which confronts my thoughts that his will for me seems foolish to me. Right? At times he asks me to obey him quickly, even before I understand why. Instantly, when that happens, <laughs> doesn't an argument just erupt, right? Between our obedience and my own common sense. God says, hey, trust me. Just do what I tell you to do right now. The same spontaneity that is needed to obey him is the same kind of spontaneity that's required to move in like the gifts of the Spirit. He calls me to trust. So the question is, how does Paul's teaching help me to obey God 
when he asks me to do difficult things. I think what Paul has done a brilliant job of showing us is that the resistance to say yes and to obey, it, it's in my flesh. It's not my spirit. That's freeing. That's where we can say, there is therefore now no condemnation, which is what we're getting ready to read this week. Paul puts God's difficult commands in perspective. He shows me that they are part of the Father's plan to make me like Jesus. And that's comforting to know where all of this is leading. You know, Paul, he protects me from misunderstanding God's motives. God's not being cruel. It's because he loves me that he calls me higher than I've ever believed it was possible for me to go. Lower than I thought my pride could bear. To be free from the fear of seeming foolish in the eyes of others. To run a longer, harder race than I thought I ever had the strength to run. To obey him quickly, even when I don't understand. Is he being cruel? No. No, it would be cruel for him to leave us right where we are. Can someone say amen? amen. Well, this week, here's your plan. I know I didn't get to the last section. I'm out of time. But just read those last section of, of Romans 7 with all, all that we've talked about in mind. Why do I do what I do? I don't know. Part of me does, part of me doesn't. It's a mess. <laughs> so this week I'm asking you, if you want to take a picture of this, you know, I have the notes. I'm asking in your family discipleship times and in your discipleship groups to talk about a time that God asked you to do something difficult. What was your first reaction? Did you finally obey? And then I want you to reread Romans 7, 15 through 25. And in what ways have you ever felt like what Paul was describing there? Talk about that. And of course, we want you guys to read Romans 8 this week. Please do a hear journal or a soap study. Something to help you apply what you're reading. And then I want you to memorize 2 Timothy 2.15. If you don't have a reading list, they're out on the Welcome Center. I encourage you to grab one. Start reading. Dig in with us. This is life. The Word of God is life to us. Amen? Let's pray. God, we're just so thankful for what you have masterfully laid out through this submitted man, the Apostle Paul. He obeyed. And he was a vo uh, your voice to us, God. So we thank you, Lord, for what you are saying to us and speaking to us through the book of Romans. And I'm praying today, God, that this week we would, as we read Romans 8, that we would take the knowledge of Romans 7, that we, there's a battle we're dead to the law. We're divorced from it. We, don't, we are widows to the law. And now we're married to Christ. And our spirit has a yes, even when our flesh protests with a no. Help us, God, to remember so that we can lift the condemnation about our identity. And live as sons who say, and daughters who say yes to your will, God. So I pray, Father, you help us today and tomorrow, and the next day, and every day going forward, to be a people who say yes. We thank you, God, for the work that you're doing, even if it's a hard season, even though the depression and the anxiety and the, and the problems, God, that come at us from every angle, we feel pressed, but not crushed, persecuted, but we're not abandoned, pressed down, but not destroyed. I am blessed beyond the curse. And all of your promises, they are yes to me. And even though there's sorrow at the night, there is joy 
at the coming of the dawn of Christ every new day where your mercies are brand new. So we rejoice in you, God, and we love you. We say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.